Section 95. Welcome to Windows 7, everyone. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. I can see all obstacles in my way. Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind. It's going to be a bright, 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 bright sunshiny day. Johnny Nash, 1972. While it is incredibly fun to do a first demo of a big product as described in the previous section, there is something that tops that and even tops the actual release to manufacturing. That is providing the release actual running code to a product's biggest fans. It was time to welcome everyone to Windows 7 and put the code that the team had been working on since the summer of 2007 out for the world of techies to experience. Seattle summers are notoriously difficult on product development. After a long spell of clouds and rains, the beauty and long days of Pacific Northwest summers arrive. Neither are particularly conducive to coding. Summer wasn't why I ended up here, but it certainly had an impact on me. On my first visit in 1999, during a dismal February, I saw the outdoor Marymore Velodrome down the street from Microsoft and thought, that is going to be great. On TV, it didn't look so difficult to ride as I eventually learned it was. I rode it exactly one time, and that was the day my bicycle arrived from Massachusetts. But alas, product development demands don't end even with 15 hours of daylight. It was going to get busy for the Windows 7 team. Our planned schedule called for the third development milestone to be completed by the end of summer 2008. We were making progress, but the schedule was slipping. The code was getting better every week, but the overall game of schedule chicken that often plagued a large product was an historical concern. This was our first time as a new team going through this part of the product cycle. While we had a good deal of positive progress building a team culture, Windows was notorious for groups betting against each other's schedules and being less than forthright with their own. When Heike Canerva was running the Office 95 ship room, he declared that everyone should be working to finish first, not simply to finish second to last. We needed to get to the end of the milestone as a team working together without looking for one group to blame, since it's never one group. John Devon and I had this same concern. Everyone spent the summer installing daily builds on every PC we could. At one point, I must have had eight different PCs between home and office and was installing on all of them nearly every day. Every night, I was installing a new build at home while doing email and other routine tasks. Even though my home service level agreement called for no beta software, an exception was made for Windows 7. I was working at two performance extremes. I went to Fry's Electronics and built my own gamer PC from the best components. I spent big bucks on a newfangled solid-state desktop drive, not common at the time, a crazy graphics card, fast memory, and the most ridiculous Intel chip available. I installed Windows 7. I was blown away by the speed, as well as the noise and wind emanating from the mini tower. Starting Order Excel seemed instantaneous. Boot took low single-digit seconds. It reminded me of the first time I used a spinning hard drive on my father's Osborne computer and how much faster it was compared to floppy disks. I used this PC, PC when I sat at my desk at work, which wasn't often, I was, I was always walking around the halls. At the other end of the spectrum were netbooks. To the degree I could, I had taken a fancy to the Lenovo netbook, the IdeaPad S10, and carried it with me everywhere, especially at my favorite breakfast place, Planet Java, or lunch place, Kid Valley, where I did a lot of Windows 7 blogging. Every netbook was close to identical on the inside, but the Lenovo had a good screen and a rugged exterior. I modified mine, replacing the spinning hard drive with a then non-economic solid-state drive to better emulate the future laptops like MacBook Air. It was my primary PC for writing blog posts, email, spreadsheets, and browsing, which was most of what I was doing. 
When we finally got to the Professional Developers Conference, this was the PC I held up with a bright yellow I'm a PC sticker on it. Stickers marketing created in their jujitsu move, embracing the blowback from the Apple TV commercials. I was constantly on the lookout for memory consumption and the number of running processes, the signs of bloat in Vista. Fewer processes and less memory were better. Each process was a critical part of Windows. The number of processes had soared with Windows Vista, and each had overhead and complexity and performance. In contrast to Linux, Windows processes were much more substantial and important to track. Windows 7 was making impressive strides in reducing memory usage and process complexity. It served to make me feel more connected to the engineering of Windows 7 and reminded me of counting bytes and seconds back in the day. I snapped screenshots of the Windows Task Manager and would bug John Devon at Alesh Holacek every couple of days. I included some of those screenshots in the online version. Each day booting into a new build and seeing the progress was a great day. Each day also revealed a crisis or a challenge, but as a team, everything continued to move forward. Even though I was mostly an observer, the effort to improve performance was some of the best work on the release. It set a tone for making progress, but also for the ability of teams to work together. The conventional wisdom was that Windows Vista was inevitable and unavoidable as capabilities were added and products grew, which could not have been prevented. Windows 7 disproved that theory. By midsummer, we had to slip the schedule based on our progress through M2 and M3. Originally, our goal was to finish M3 and have a full beta in time for the previously scheduled Professional Developers Conference, the PDC, in Los Angeles. We weren't where we needed to be, so we took about an eight-week slip. The build of the PDC would officially be pre-beta, terminology we just made up. This would be our last slip. John and I were privately relieved at the degree of this slip, but frankly, the team was excited to just be on track relatively, for the first time in many years. Depending on your experience or the context, eight weeks can seem huge or literally nothing. Trust me, it was nothing. Steve B. sent a memo to all of Microsoft outlining some of the work to date for the whole of the fiscal year. The company had made a lot of progress on many fronts. The topic that had occupied a great deal of discussion and was a good portion of his memo was Google and competing with them on the consumer front and in a potential relationship with Yahoo. Steve B. also described the emerging cloud strategy and the fact that more would be shared on this topic at our upcoming PDC. For fiscal year 2008, it was quite a year for Microsoft. Revenue broke $60 billion and operating profit grew 21% to $22.5 billion. The numbers were just incredible. Still, the concerns about the PC and catching up on consumer services dominated Wall Street's view. This memo was one of the early communications in a strategic shift to the cloud. And you can feel the push-pull between the cloud and the traditional model and the technology descriptions. It is important to say that it was still super early in the journey to the cloud for enterprise computing. And the topic was not top of mind for those customers, especially as the financial crisis began to take hold. In fact, the feeling that the cloud was architecturally inferior to private data centers was by far the most common customer belief. Their future enterprise computing model was a data center running servers using virtualization. In 2008, the idea that there would be something of a new cloud operating system was mostly a view held inside the halls of Google. The online version includes the full text of the Steve B. memo. In the memo, Steve B. announced that Kevin Johnson was leaving to be CEO of Juniper Networks and that John and I, along with Bill Vecti, who was leading marketing, would report directly to Steve, a reporting structure that remained in place throughout the release. There were no issues there. This was standard and expeditious as a way to handle managerial change at this stage of a big product. 
Incidentally, Satya Nadella, email Satya N, had recently moved to manage the search team and ads in March of 2007 and would also report to Steve B in a similar move. In the lead-up to the PDC, we began blogging publicly about Windows 7. With the focus on tech enthusiasts, IT professionals, and the trade press, I created a blog called Engineering Windows 7, or E7, as we called it. As an extension of how we thought about blogging for Office 2007, the blogs are the primary first-party communication channel for the product. We authored long and detailed posts, thousands of words, about the implementation choices we were making and how we measured progress. We offered tons of data to describe real-world Windows use, often my favorite posts. I authored posts, but also introduced posts that other team members wrote, each expressing the design, point of view, and the rationale. Many generated a great deal of dialogue and discussion and became news stories themselves. There wasn't really a hacker news for Windows coverage, but the comment section of many stories read just like those hacker news stories would read today. Tech enthusiasts love to dispute the data and provide their own point of view just as they do today. The online version has the welcome post to the E7 blog. I've also compiled all of the E7 blog posts into a single PDF and attached that as well since those are no longer available on the Microsoft site. While to some press the blogging came across as a carefully crafted corporate message, nothing was further from the truth. We were simply blogging. The posts did not go through any corporate machinery or apparatus. They were as authentic as they could be. And the tradition worked so well that after the PDC, it became a significant part of the communication of Windows going forward. There were two relevant industry announcements that at any other time would have caused a great deal of distraction. The PC world was entirely focused on the PC to the exclusion of the world of mobile phones and to some degree, browsers were still distinct challenges to Windows because they still ran on Windows and had yet yet to incorporate much beyond rendering text and graphics. Yet both phones and browsers would have announcements that would radically alter the competitive landscape for Windows 7. In July 2008 at Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, the WWDC, Apple's version of the PDC, Apple announced the much-anticipated and predicted iPhone, SDK, and App Store. Initially, it had 500 apps, small relative to the PC apps, but that number would grow at an astronomical rate. More importantly, it solved many of the key problems that had plagued PCs. In the announcement, which was a short note from Steve Jobs posted to Apple's Hot News site, he said, We're trying to do two diametrically opposed things at once. Provide an advanced and open platform to developers, while at the same time protect iPhone users from viruses, malware, privacy attacks, etc. This controversial change riled tech enthusiasts, but also ushered in a new definition of computer, one that was safer and more reliable than anything a PC or a Mac could offer. In the online version, I include the full text of Steve Jobs' uh, note that was posted on the Apple site. The App Store also provided distribution and awareness to developers, a way to make money, and a way for Apple to vet apps that might be harmful to consumers. At the time, the focus was on the fact that 30% goes to Apple. When we saw the store, however, we knew the change would be monumental. To find software for a PC, the best someone could have hoped for was a website such as download.com. There existed varying levels of trialware, freeware, spyware, and malware. Apple had solved the software distribution problem, made sure software was reasonably safe and high quality, and given ISVs a huge new avenue for creativity and money. All on the most exciting computer around, the iPhone. That was bad news. The good news was that the world still viewed PCs and phones as totally different things. 
of course, the world other than Steve Jobs and Apple, as discussed in the previous section. History would later reveal, through email discovery, the internal conflict that surrounded opening the iPhone to developers so broadly. The success would also go far beyond even what Steve Jobs anticipated. All I could think of was time. I need more time. Okay, that was not all I thought. I also greatly admired what Apple was accomplishing. Like many who joined the apps division in the 1980s, Macintosh was a crucial part of my early Microsoft work and the years before that. The old Mac Toolbox APIs are forever imprinted in my memories. Other than the diehard fans, few generally acknowledge the consistent refinement and foresight in Apple's software design. Several of us on the team were original Mac third-party developers from the mid-80s and had always admired not only the results, but the patience of their process. The continuous iteration and complete execution of what they did was so admirable. Apple's business in Macs was definitely not something we worried about, but their product execution was worrisome. I looked over their R&D spend and compared it to Windows and Office. In 2008, Apple for the first time eclipsed $1 billion in R&D for the year, a big uptick from the previous year, perhaps an indication of iPhone and iCloud ramp. The full Windows 7 team was spending about the same. There's a huge difference in R&D when it comes to having a full ecosystem, but at the same time R&D for hardware is much more expensive. The main point is, was not only that they were building breakthrough products, they were doing so remarkably efficiently compared to Microsoft. The online version has a photo of some books on my shelf that include an old Mac developer book that I just love called Macintosh Revealed. The Mac might have been a better product, but Windows won, and the winning product becomes the better product in the market. It was not till, until the iPhone and the iPhone SDK came to be that the true appreciation of all they had done with so relatively little was so broadly understood. A more shocking announcement that hit closer to home came six weeks later. Google announced the Chrome browser with a blog post and a classically googly online comic that accidentally dropped too soon. The online inversion includes a page from that comic. Chrome, ironically named due to the absence of user interface Chrome, would prove to be monumentally disruptive to the browser world. Google had dramatically improved performance and security in browsing compared to IE7 from Vista, or IE6 that so many were running still, and the current leader, Firefox. They had committed to open source and brought an entirely new level of energy to the browser battle. In his blog post, Sundar Pichai, yes, then a product manager for Chrome, wrote in a nod to antitrust that, quote, the web gets better with more options and innovation. Google Chrome is another option, and we hope it contributes to making the web even better. In some ways, we were straight back to 1996 again. This would be a huge problem for the newly reconstituted Internet Explorer team, both immediately and going forward. Within a short time, there was a massive share shift to Chrome. Much like Gmail, Google released a product seemingly out of nowhere into what was viewed as a stable space and then took it over. It would be years before privacy, tracking, and all the, quote, evil stuff Google's browser would come to be. But at the time, a new competitive landscape was defined for IE. If our job was difficult before, it suddenly became even more so. The PDC took place on October 27th at, at the Los Angeles Convention Center. Azure, the new name for Project Red Dog, was announced on the day one keynote. That proved to be both prescient and somewhat ahead of the curve for most attendees. Windows 7 was the second day keynote and carried the bulk of the news for the show. In some ways, the fact that most of the attendees did not seem to find Azure immediately useful made our jobs easier. Most attendees were still debating the proper way to pronounce Azure, 
The developer relations leader found the debate the night before particularly irksome, as he was a Persian who had his own ideas of how to pronounce a word he claimed as native origin. I was completely entertained by this late-night sideshow. Nevertheless, the fact that attendees were somewhat puzzled by Azure compared to what they saw as vastly more interesting sessions on .NET, Avalon or WPF, virtualization, or even the Windows 7 desktop. The disconnect was a harbinger of the disruption challenges the entrenched Microsoft would face. While the audience for the PDC was professional developers there to learn the latest in APIs, tools, and techniques from Microsoft, the front rows of the main hall were all too familiar members of the press. Looking out from the stage, I could see all the stalwarts of Microsoft beat reporters and technology press who had been frustrated by me and the lack of information on Windows 7. We were doing a keynote for developers who spent a few thousand dollars to be at the show, but in reality, we were putting on a show that needed to be understood by the mainstream media and conveyed through the expertise of the industry press. The online version has a sh photo of the audience just before the show started. Steve Jobs had upped the stakes with his spectacular keynotes, increasing pressure across the industry to put on a good show. The normal Microsoft keynotes, the kind pioneered by Bill G, were long and detailed with complex architecture slides and many graphics. These were somewhat enhanced as we moved to enterprise computing with obligatory and infamous partner videos featuring senior IT professionals in front of architectural diagrams or racks of equipment extolling the virtues of Microsoft's strategy. The audience expected this type of keynote and expected us to write code on stage. By those measures, the keynote might disappoint. I did include the, the partner video that we used with Autodesk, and I also included the outline of the demo script that I first created for the keynote in the online versions. Having said that, as we planned for my first keynote leading Windows, I knew the biggest mistake I could have made would have been to try to emulate what I was not. Most importantly, I had to find a way to apologize for Vista without throwing the product or the team under the bus. I had to find a way to be excited about Windows 7, realizing we also had holiday PCs with Vista yet to sell. Above all, our announcement was for a pre-beta, not even an official beta, though it was ultimately a distinction without a difference. For my part, I went with who I was. Like Sammy Davis Jr. used to say, I just gotta be me. The slides I showed were sparse and my words carefully chosen. While not one for grand entrances, I did choose I Can See Clearly Now by Johnny Nash as walk-on music. I was the only thing standing between the thousands of press and attendees and seeing Windows 7 code running. We knew people were there to see a demo, not a build-up or a long story. Just get to the clicks. I used just two minutes and not even 400 words, then introduced Julie Larson Green to step on stage and start clicking. I stepped down from the podium and remained backstage opposite Julie. The online version has the full keynote deck and also a photo of Julie doing the demo with me in the background. As soon as she brought up the screen on the monitor, people started taking pictures, some with their new iPhones, but most with Windows Mobile since they were live blogging the event. We knew they were noting the build number that was visible at the bottom of the screen, confirming that our debate at the very start about what version of Windows we were working on would be part of the conversation. With, with a, in about a minute, Julie got her first round of spontaneous applause and even hoots. The demo was fantastic, and every time she said, works the way you want to, we could feel the excitement. She demonstrated all the features with both mouse and by using touch on a monitor, including an on-screen keyboard with predictive text and more. The bulk of the demonstration emphasized putting you in control of Windows. Once she finished, I stepped onto the center of the stage and got to say, on behalf of the entire Windows team, something two years in the making. Welcome to Windows 7, everyone. 
it was the perfect demo to introduce the product. There's a photo of that slide and me saying welcome in the online version. At some point in the keynote, I needed to address what everyone was waiting for, which was what did Microsoft really think about Vista? While the press would no doubt take note, the credibility of what was said would rely on winning over the tech enthusiasts. More than any audience, the tech enthusiasts in the room were the most disappointed by Vista and felt let down by the product. From March 2006, when I came to Windows, I promised to never be critical of what preceded me, and I intended for that to remain the case. It would have been so easy and, frankly, cathartic for the room to be profusely apologetic for Vista. It would have been equally wrong to pretend that we had not made some sort of mistake. I chose a path of subtlety and to acknowledge, quote, feedback in all its forms, including a few television commercials. With a slide titled, Transition from Windows Vista, I framed the work we had done since Vista released as providing context for the day's keynote. I'm quoting from the transcript. As we set out to build this release of Windows, we really did have to recognize the context with which we were releasing Windows 7 and developing it. And that's in transitioning from Windows Vista. We certainly got a lot of feedback about Windows Vista at RTM. Audience laughter. We got feedback from reviews, from the press, a few bloggers here and there. Oh, and some commercials. Lots of laughter. As part of the session, we wanted to highlight some of the features that were specifically relevant to the developer and enthusiast crowd. I took a moment to show seven features, the number seven was used a lot throughout the day, that were chosen specifically to generate applause for the crowd, including BitLocker encryption, which was previously only in Vista Ultimate, mounting a VHD, a virtualization feature, high DPI, support for really big monitors with normal size text like developers used, Magnify, which was an assistive technology for low vision, but also really useful for product demonstrations. Remote desktop across dual monitors. It was the first live demo of using two monitors that we ever did. Also a feature very useful for developers testing on other machines. Taskbar customization. Frankly, anything with customization was a crowd pleaser. And action center customization. Importantly, the user account control or UAC feature, the improvements over Windows Vista that enthusiasts were just desperate for. We wanted the keynote to be easy and approachable, not usually the norm at the PDC. That also meant we would leave out a good deal of the team's work and new features present in the beta build. To that end, we created a massive product guide for the trade press. We would also follow that up with a workshop for them to attend where they would have a chance to ask questions directly of the product leaders. The full product guide ran 119 pages. The team promised and delivered. And you could see this from the prominence of the engineering focus areas featured in the product guide, which were taken straight from the product vision and mock press release from a year and a half earlier. The online version contains a screenshot of the engineering focus areas, as well as the entire reviewer's guide in a PDF format. While we would not normally expect long term reviews and deep dives in a pre-beta, Windows 7 was generating so much interest that the tech press was filing tons of stories, as were individual bloggers who drilled into every aspect of change from Vista. YouTube was filled with video demos created in short order. Windows 7 was even the top of tech meme, and not for messing up. The online version has a screenshot of tech meme from back at that day. An example of the coverage was ActiveWin, a Windows-focused outlet that wrote over 13,500 words plus screenshots on the pre-release. Andre Tacosta wrote most of the piece, releasing it on October 31st, just as the conference ended. They dove into seemingly every detail, including their summary of the key goals of the release. I'll read the key goals from his story. Key goals, 
Underpromise and overdeliver. Reduce compatibility problems and bring investments in Vista forward. Reduce disk footprint and memory footprint. Improve performance. Secure and predictable. Make Windows and the PC experience easier. Exceptional hardware and software support. Bring future releases to market faster. Personalized experience that defines you. Superior mobility through reliable performance and power management. As you can see, these were straight out of the reviewer's guide in terms of what we wanted to accomplish, so it was great to see those reflected. ActiveWin concluded better than anything what we, we could have written ourselves, promise and deliver. Quoting, It's safe to say that I am overwhelmed, overjoyed, and most of all excited about Windows 7. This is the release of Windows everybody has been waiting for. It's what Vista was meant to be and beyond that. Windows 7 puts the user first. It's about going back to the fundamentals of what an operating system must do. Managing and maintaining your PC is exceptionally seamless with Windows 7, and users will appreciate the tremendous improvements and advancement this update will offer on both existing and new hardware form factors in the future. Windows Vista set the foundation for a lot of what happened, what's happening in Windows 7 today. Windows 7 makes security essential, but not aggressive like Windows Vista. The improved UAC will no doubt give consumers confidence in this feature. Just the fact that you can tweak it to certain degrees is a welcome change. Businesses will appreciate the improvements to how the OS is managed and deployed, while mobile users can get better experiences between their work and home environments. Home networking has finally reached a level of ease of use that will make even the novice PCs easy to use at home talking to each other. There is still a lot of work to be done, as this early glimpse shows, but Microsoft is on the right path with Windows 7, focusing on ease of use, compatibility, better ways of interacting with the PC, and managing the personal data. This is an upgrade I am looking forward to, and you should too. Post on Windows 7 experiences across all sorts of different hardware appeared. In Gadget, everyone's favorite tech blog, tried Windows 7 on the ASUS EPC, the netbook from the previous sections. Writing, just as Microsoft demonstrated, the relatively lightweight Microsoft OS required just 485 megabytes of RAM when Windows 7 was fully loaded, sans applications, of course. Hot. The article's title was even great for all the work the team put into this specific metric. Quoting, lightweight Windows 7 pre-beta on EPC-1000H looks very promising. I can personally confirm that memory usage number. As a manager of a giant product and team, there are, honestly, very few rewarding moments that are also deeply personal. Nearly all the time, there's worry about how the team is doing and if they are finding the joy they deserve. October 28, 2008 was one of those exceedingly rare moments for me. Now on to release to manufacturing.